Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 85 of quarantine from my eight-year-old son's bedroom in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the smog-shrouded urban sprawl of the City of Angels. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, someone from the short list of name-brand documentary filmmakers working today, his latest film, 537 Votes, airing on HBO, takes a look back at the historic 2000 Florida recount, which decided the presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Hello and welcome, Billy Corbin. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, thank you for being here with me. You have a unique career in that the thread that ties your filmography together is not subject or agenda or genre, but location. You are the Florida documentary guy. And as far as I can tell, you didn't even grow up there, which is especially interesting to me. What is it about Florida that you want to keep sharing with the world? Oh, no, I did. I'm a uh, Florida native and a, a okay. lifelong Miamian. Um, okay. Like, like, I know you spent a lot of time in Los Angeles as a young person. Yeah, just a few years, yeah, of my life, yeah. But okay. like, like, like Brad Meltzer, I am a native. Like my buddy oh, Brad, Brad Meltzer, sure. <laughs> And Who's on last week's show? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so I, um, you know, we we realized pretty early on that like we were almost perpetually living history down here. Like you always kind of you're even as kids, you're like this is this feels like a big deal. Everything feels like a big deal when you're a kid. But like certain events that occurred in South Florida, you're like oh. And then I read uh, T D Allman's book, Miami City of the Future. The title kind of gives it away a little bit. The The thesis is that the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. And if you want to know what challenges we'll face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the years or even decades to come, you just look at, at South Florida, where America's canary in the coal mine. So when we decided to venture upon this career as nonfiction filmmakers, we realized that Miami was an undertapped resource for characters and stories. Well, Florida at large. And so Florida fuckery became our, our genre. I'm sorry. I know you're in your eight-year-old son's room and I curse <laughs> and I feel bad about that. Don't even worry about it. He curses like a sailor. We're working on it. But, you know, there's, we can only do so much as parents during coronavirus. So do you feel like the thesis of that book has borne out? Do you feel like Florida has indeed been the canary in the coal mine of America in the decades that have passed since? I regret to inform you and your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> right. It gives me no pleasure to tell you this, but I think it's true. I mean, it, it, just in this documentary alone, I mean, you look at the 2000 Florida recount where Miami was the front line in what Roger Stone told us in, in the documentary was a street brawl for the presidency of the United States. And I think about 2000 for me, I, that was my second election. I turned 18 in the summer of 96, voted in 96, so my second election, my producing partners, it was their first election, presidential election that they got to vote in. So I really think that for all millions of Americans, that was a loss of innocence. I think we started to lose faith and trust in a lot of our institutions, be it the media, the Electoral College, the United States Supreme Court. And we kind of came to realize that maybe one of our two major political parties is less committed to democracy and free and fair elections than they are to gaining power by any means necessary. And that 
like rift, that fault line that I think cracked in Miami in 2000 spread and I think set a tone for partisan politics in the 21st century and is now 20 years later, I think wider and deeper than ever before. Well, certainly in any living person's lifetime, I want to play devil's advocate with the the approach that you take in this documentary. To what extent did what happened in Florida in 2000, was that something new? And to what extent was that just somebody pulling back a leaf and revealing the underbelly of insect life that had been going on underneath there all the time? Was, did, was it shocking to you because you were an adult coming of age? But anybody who was, you know, they've been saying for as long as I can remember, as anybody can remember, you know, politics and sausage are the two things you don't want to see getting made. Yeah, election chicanery was nothing new. Um, it, it was playing out, though, to your point, in a 24-hour news cycle. Yes, sure. You know, in, in where the canvassing rooms where they're counting the ballots were literally a bubble that the entire world was was watching through a literal window. Um, so, yeah, there was, it was definitely there was definitely a microscope uh, on it. But I think what happened is it, it, it was I think elections are lost all the time. And the 2000 presidential election was lost in many places. But as one of our interview subjects says, it was stolen in Miami. And I don't think we had ever seen, you hear about Kennedy in, in Chicago, you know, and, and you're, you're, there's all these sort of uh, a tale, some of which are, are probably true, some of which may be apocryphal, but we kind of watched on live TV from November 7th through December 12th, sneak preview of how long a presidential election can go on for, by the way. Um, if not longer. Uh, yeah, we watched... A, an election be stolen on live TV. And I think that was definitely, that was the innovation. <laughs> that, that was what was new there. Why this story now? When did you start making this documentary? And when you initially embarked, did you see the looming threat of a contested election in 2020 ahead? Well, before we started, I think uh, we had already started talking in our office at Rack and Tour in Miami Beach about what 2020 would look like, how we wanted to contribute to that election cycle, what kind of project we'd want to do. And we realized quickly that, you know, since we really do turn a camera onto Miami very often in our work, that Miami played an extremely outsized role in the Florida recount and the fate of the free world, which all came down to 537 votes in Florida. That was it. You know, Trump won by 77,000 votes in 2016 in three states. I don't know 77,000 people. We all have more Facebook friends than, you know, than 537. That's an, an extraordinarily narrow margin that any of us could reach out and touch and, and impact the outcome of a presidential uh, election. And so we realized it was the 20th anniversary. And, you know, in this racket, and when you're trying to market or sell a documentary, anniversaries are really good to answer your why now question, you know, because every buyer yeah. has a why now? Why do we have to, you know, so, you know, when, from a marketing perspective, the anniversary was helpful, but really we just, we've been living the epilogue of the 2000 presidential election for the last 20 years. And so we wanted to present the prologue and we thought there was like a lot of important lessons that we wanted to learn. We had assistant last year and she was born in 1990. And so we asked her, we said, what do you remember about the 2000 Florida recount? You were 10 years old. She says, she kind of shrugs sheepishly. And she says, hanging chads, was that a thing? And we're like, right. totally. But that's all she knew of it. That was her only, her sole kind of frame of reference. And so we wondered, you know, in uh, 
2020, how many Americans will be theoretically eligible to vote? So there are at least 18, um, but we're basically born between 1990 when she was born and 2002. So you're either too young to remember the 2000 election and how 537 votes determined the fate of the free world. And you were now, or you weren't even born yet and are now eligible to vote. 54 million Americans born between that time period. And so if 537 votes can swing the outcome of an election, certainly 54 million Americans need to know about this and know that not only do they have to vote, but they may actually have to wind up fighting legally and otherwise to have their vote counted. I'm not sure that I knew a whole heck of a lot about this story than your uh, person that you work with who was born in 1990. I just have this like visceral um, repulsion to the worst elements of democracy in action where everybody's shouting at each other and nobody's interested in finding the truth. Everybody's interested in, in their team winning. So it's been a... For, for, for me, as well as most people listening to this, a very frustrating era that we're currently uh, living in. And in your film, that begins well before the Florida recount with the equally hard to stomach story of Elian Gonzalez, who, as one person in the documentary puts it, it literally becomes a, a human wishbone. And here's this tragic miracle of a story on Thanksgiving 99. This five-year-old boy discovered after three days of floating on a rubber inner tube after his mother yeah after his mother and 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 some of his other other you know boatmates perished at sea um discovered by these fishermen i mean it was an extraordinary story and obviously the powerful voting block of cuban exiles and cuban americans in miami were just galvanized by this and then of course the international custody dispute that erupted between his father, his closest living relative who was willing and able to take custody back of the boy and his so-called Miami relatives. Uh, and this became in 2000, one of the hottest and I should say hot potato presidential election year issues. And how incredibly quaint and novel is it and ironic to look back and see that the Republicans came down in droves to stand behind this little boy and fight for the rights of this one immigrant child to stay in the United States, how the world has changed. Right. And that is what's so incredibly frustrating about it is it sometimes doesn't even matter which side they're arguing. It could have been the exact opposite side 10 years ago, but this is where the points are to be scored nowadays. And it's just, it's very frustrating. Uh, what do you think should have happened with Elian Gonzalez, incidentally? I'm a rule of law guy. I believe that, you know, if we're going to be a nation of laws and we're going to believe in the Constitution and these, these, somewhat arbitrary man-made rules that we that we have because you know a contract's only as good as the willingness of the parties to enforce it so if we if we start creating double standards and we say well this president or these people are exempt from the rule of law democracy and capitalism completely fall apart cronyism destroys capitalism and so uh, the the reality was under immigration law under family law when you have a closest living relative you know like a father who wants the boy back i don't see what choice Janet Reno and the Clinton administration had. Put the shoe on the other foot. Let's say a parent from the United States took their American-born child to, right. another, to another country and the United States, the, the, uh, you know, a parent in the United States was like, I want my child back. Where, where would you want, you know, the, what would you want the other country to do in that, in that circumstance? Well, except for the part where the mother, and, and I know very, very little about the details of the Elian Gonzalez saga, that the mother left with the, chi with the child, but without the father. I would want to, and this is where it's, I, I hate how many things end up getting decided by judges, but that's the best thing that we've got. 
I'd want to know something about the dad because in a vacuum, I totally agree with you, but it is conspicuous that he's still behind in Cuba when his child is is at sea. Well, they were divorced. He was remarried. He apparently didn't even know about this treacherous and dangerous journey that the mother was going to undertake. Um, There's a lot of nuances to that story. There's no question that it is a tragic quagmire. And and as Rick Sanchez says in the documentary, we weren't talking about sending a boy back to Rhode Island. We're talking about communist Cuba. So that and that's really, of course, what rankled and and distressed Cuban-American voters down here. And as soon as uh, despite the fact that Al Gore had broken with his own administration and came out in favor of the boy staying in the United States, um, when Bill Clinton and Janet Reno as attorney general, you know, during that notorious uh, Easter Eve raid came in and, and took the boy away. You have to remember by then the Miami relatives had thumbed their nose at court orders at the FBI, at the immigration services, they what was occurring legally at that point was tantamount to a kidnapping. So they went in to effectively liberate the child and reunite him with his father, which all the American courts had said, that is the unfortunate but correct course of action uh, here under the law. Um, after that, it was on. I mean, it was voto castigo, the revenge vote. It was like a, a ballot box fatwa declared by the Cuban exile community. And they didn't care that Al Gore was on their side. They needed to get a win. Okay, because that's what this was. This was a proxy war. Like you said, the boy just became a symbol or a political football, you know, Uh, a proxy war decades long between the Cuban exile community and Fidel Castro and all the demagoguery of comunista, comunista that we're actually seeing in this election cycle all over again, even without an Elian Gonzalez case in 2020. But you, you basically they said we're going to make Al Gore and the Democrats pay uh, in the 20 in the 2000 election for what the Clinton administration did with Elian. I wonder what you thought looking back at the two candidates as they were at the time. I haven't spent that much time with 2000 George W. Bush or Al Gore in some time. My take was Bush just crushes Gore in retail politics in a way that I didn't totally recall. Al Gore manages to look awkward kissing the mother of his children. Meanwhile, George Bush repeatedly refers to Elian Gonzalez as alien. Alien. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. I think even I'm putting the stress on the wrong. I think it's Elian. It's like the stress is, you know. I know it's not alien. It's not alien. And even if it is, George W. Bush is the only native English speaker who was saying it that way. Yes. Uh, And actually, George W. Bush speaks pretty decent Spanish. Uh, Surprisingly good. Yeah. yeah. He might be better at that in English than English for all we know. (laughs) It's an argument. Honestly, what's incredible about it, you know, Adam McKay, our executive producer, was the head writer of SNL in 2000 when this was all going down. And I... The depictions of the candidates, Will Ferrell as George W. Bush, Daryl Hammond, brilliant as Al Gore, uh, and also doing double duty as Bill Clinton. Um, I remember just as much from that as I do, you know, from the actual candidates and the debates themselves. I mean, strategery and lockbox and all that, like those sort of iconic terms that you're like, did they really say that? Or was that just SNL? You know, and I think it was like kind of a little bit of a little bit of both. Uh, at the time, but yeah, absolutely. My my salient memory of George W. Bush is Will Ferrell saying to whoever played John McCain, "Oh, are you a veteran? I didn't know that." <laughs> yeah, and and listen, him saying in real life, uh, you know, they misunderestimated me. You know right. I mean, like, just you know, I, I and to your point, he became the guy I'd have a beer with. Right. By the way, I don't know why that's a criteria for the president of the United States. I'd much rather. The, the policy wonk, you know, who just wants to drill in and actually do the job of the president, which we now understand, I think, 
takes more than a, a game show host. Like it's it's a it's a serious uh, policy driven wonky kind of a gig. And I think you know when you look at Al Gore's background, he was practically like invented in a test tube to do that job. But yet, like you said, retail politics, man. Here's where I really want to dig in on this. I'm looking at this again, and I'm trying to figure out how bad what happened in 2000 really is. Now, I know that you're a sports guy. Sometimes a series goes to seven, and Kawhi Leonard takes a shot, and it bounces off the rim three times. And in the end, it's not really about one team being better. It's just that somebody had to win. And I think that we understand there's this thing in a lot of sports, if you're not cheating, you're not trying, that there's a certain amount of chicanery that just demonstrates competence, right? If James Harden pays off the refs, that's wrong. If James Harden flops here and there, that's James Harden being good at basketball. You see Al Gore, you see Warren Christopher, the guy he sent down there to be his rep, portrayed as essentially Boy Scouts. Now, I wanted Gore to win at the time, and I can't help but wonder what would have happened differently in the world, you know, in, in the subsequent years had he won. But I think that there are quite a few Americans who get at a, a gut level that if you can't win an election you won, then maybe you were not really up to the job of facing down hostile foreign threats and hostile foreign leaders. And so maybe it's not so much about the guy you want to have a beer with. It's the guy that you see being able to get things done and not just be professorial when it comes to politics. I think those are two really good points. I'll start with the first one. I think that the the meta, the sports metaphor, the, the it's apt. My only pushback there would be politics is not sports and it shouldn't be. This idea that like we're rooting for our team regardless of whether or not they play by the rules just as long as they win. I think that's not how we should choose leaders, particularly of the the free world. And I think so much of American life, including our politics, has become the WWE, Uh, not even sports, but like specifically the W where it's like it's part sports and part theater. It's sports entertainment. It is sports entertainment. And I think that's not I think that's not doing our democracy or our constitutional republic uh, justice. And I think it's not doing our our allies and even enemies uh, justice. I don't think it's fair uh, to the rest of the world, either us being such an influential uh, wealthy country. But I think your last point is extremely salient, uh, especially now. As I always say, the Democrats never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And it certainly seems to me if the last four years are any indication that they have not learned the important lessons of the 2000 Florida recount. And I'll, I'll point to actually um, George W. Bush um, campaign operative who was down here on the ground in Florida on the front lines in Miami-Dade, Brad Blakeman, who we interview in 537 votes. His metaphor is a three-legged stool. And he said that we had to win in the courts, in the uh, canvassing board recount rooms, and in the streets. And Al, Gore's, Al Gore lacked that third leg, and thus his stool fell. Well, and it wasn't even so much that he didn't realize the importance of it. It was the high-mindedness of the way that he and Warren Christopher were going to do things. He saw it. He just was above it. This is a metaphor that is uh, that I've been using a lot the last four years. It's barely a metaphor. It's quite literal, uh, and it's extremely uh, appropriate to the 2000 election as well. If you are on the floor and your opponent has one shoe on your neck and with the other foot is kicking you repeatedly in the stomach and you're down there waving the constitution around you are losing that argument that's right which sort of leads us to roger stone who's all over this documentary is it speaking of is it of boots on necks and kicking you in the stomach yeah so he he's, he tells a great story and he wears silly suits are we clear roger stone did anything in florida in 2000 
It's a really good question that I don't know I know the answer to. Uh, let me tell you my meet cute with Roger Stone, if I might use that, that term in reference to Roger Stone. Sure. We called him up and made an appointment to meet with him to kind of ask him to do this interview for an early supper at uh, a steakhouse that he loves in his stomping ground of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Um, my producing partner and I show up. Um, we're too cheap to valet park, so we park two blocks away and walk to the restaurant. I say that by way of explaining, we were walking outside. It was a beautiful, clear uh, evening just before dusk, uh, not a cloud in the sky. We go into the restaurant. We sit down at a booth in a pretty quiet dining room because it was so early. And within minutes, the skies opened up. I mean, we looked at the floor to ceiling windows at, along the bar area. It was pitch black, just like that. And, and just this suddenly this biblical storm, electrical storm with lightning and thunder rattling the windows and people in the bar area going, ooh, ah, like this incredible light, light show that, that happened. And then the door opened and from emerging from this hell storm is Roger Stone dressed to the nines, his circular sunglasses on, not a drop on him. He crosses the dining room, sits down at the booth, looks up to the waiter who magically appears, orders a Stoli martini, turns to us and says, under his glasses, don't tell anyone I ordered Russian vodka. And that's how we met Roger Stone. Voldemort, table for three. Gotcha. <laughs> so, I, again, as somebody who had largely tuned out a lot of this stuff because I couldn't stand to watch my parents fighting on TV every night, essentially... We talk about the chads, and the chads are what your intern or, I'm sorry, employee remember, but it wasn't necessarily even about the chads. Pat Buchanan, I don't think I ever knew this, Pat Buchanan admits that he probably got 20,000 votes that Al Gore should have gotten. People are checking two boxes. If you look at the ballot, you could kind of see how they got confused, and... If you look at the amount of votes Gore got versus the amount of votes that the Reform Party candidate, Pat Buchanan, got, it's very likely that if there's two check marks that the person meant Gore and accidentally hit Buchanan first, which Pat Buchanan himself, a, light a lifelong right-wing operative in his own right, admits. Yeah, the, the election was lost in a lot of places. Al Gore lost Tennessee, his home state, for example. There did is, he? He did. Um, there oh, is man. the the notorious butterfly ballot in Palm Beach uh, you're talking about where there was a, a uh, candidates were listed on both sides to the left and right of the punch card. And then you were alternating which hole you had to punch in order to, and people were confused. Uh, uh, Buchanan got thousands of votes and then 19,000, as you mentioned, were thrown away because they were double punched because confused voters who I think were worried they, they voted for the wrong candidate punched two holes, which automatically disqualifies uh, your, your ballot, which resulted in the famous book titled Jews for Buchanan, which of course was uh, a bit of an oxymoron. Um, but the, the reality is, though, is that was a legal ballot. The Democratic Party and Republican parties of Palm Beach County approved that ballot it was extremely confusing, no, particularly for the, you know, the elderly population of which it was, is, is substantial in Palm Beach County. Um, but they voted and their votes were either counted or disqualified based on the rules that were already in place. So the 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 you know, as as Roger Stone says, it's kind of caveat emptor, buyer beware. So while the, the election was lost in many places, it was stolen in Miami-Dade County. Right. The Chads themselves Again, I had to sort of familiarize myself with this for the first time to say that the 
person with the dimpled or the hanging chad had not intended to vote for the person that ended up with the dimpled or hanging chad is to say that thousands of people started to vote for one candidate almost pushed the paper all the way through then thought better of it but not so strongly that they went and fully voted for the other candidate that is the argument for discarding the chatted ballots and it was in fact not hundreds but 10 or even thousands but tens of thousands tens of thousands more statewide and specifically in miami dade county which is the biggest bluest county in the state at the time 10,750 of these so-called undervote ballots, which is insane. Nobody lines up for hours, okay, you know, for to vote for a mayor or city councilman, as someone says in our, our documentary. You're, you're certainly going to, you might vote for some down ballot races or not, but you're certainly going to vote for the president of the United States. And as we discovered with this antiquated 1960s IBM Votomatic technology that we were using in the year 2000. I think about the Conan O'Brien bit about the yes. year 2000. Here we thought it was going to be the Jetsons, and we're in 1960s Votomatic tech. It slices, it dices, it dimples, it chads. Like the Votomatic, like we like like we had bought these on, on the Atlantic City Boardwalk or something. The Votomatic machines, and you had these punch cards where you have to like with these perforated squares, they had to punch it all the way through so that the Scantron machine or whatever could count them. And if you hadn't penetrated them completely. They wouldn't count, but then you could do a hand recount where they could hold the ballots up to the sky and see if any light was coming through to try to deign the intent of the voter based upon dimples. Or it's, It was crazy that that was the technology in place at the time. But the reality was people had shown up to vote. There were fundamental flaws in the machine and technology were the reasons that people in good faith showed up voted, expected, rightfully so, for their vote to be counted, and they were basically thrown in the trash can. Al Gore is portrayed, rightly or wrongly, calling the shots from his side of things. It's less clear to me who the field general was throughout the Florida recount stuff for the Republicans. Did you get any sense of how hands-on George W. Bush was himself with the field operations? The impression I got was that he was involved little, if at all. Right? James Baker, who basically ran the end of the Reagan administration when Reagan was sort of, you know, an absentee president, if you will. Um, yes. He was very much in charge and he definitely reflected the attitude of the candidate, which is this sort of like frat boy, win at all costs, you know, uh, bring out, bring out the six shooters kind of mentality. Whereas Warren Christopher, as you, as you pointed out, was, a, was like a constitutional scholar who felt that the world was watching us and they needed to see the world's greatest democracy working in an effective and gentlemanly constitutional way. We have one clip of Warren Christopher. He says the word constitution like 60 times in about four and a half seconds, which is beautiful. But as Rick Sanchez says in the documentary, while the Democrats were trying to do the right thing, the Republicans were busy figuring out how to win. And I don't think George W. Bush was the strategery man on that. I think I think his brother Jeb, who was conveniently the governor of the state, um, Catherine Harris, uh, the the secretary of state, who was also a co-chair of George W. Bush's campaign in Florida. And you had a lot of this is the thing, too. All politics is local, man. Uh, elections, even national elections, they're run by counties. They're yes. not run by the federal government. These are lo- so it's almost it's too late now for us to do anything about 2020 because these officials are elected. They are in mm-hmm. office. Uh, they have they have appointed the other officials who will be extremely influential in this uh, process. And they're 
your local mayors and commissioners and some of the yokel political grifters who kind of exist in the uh, in the election economy and ecosystem. They have everybody's number and they're hitting up canvassing board members. You don't know what the hell's going on, but there's a lot of these small players who have a lot of power in national elections locally. Yeah, yeah. Your local political people are rarely your 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 best and brightest. If you're unimpressed with our national politicians, wait till you get a load of your local guys and, and gals. I have to let you go. If I could do two more quick questions. I'm not surprised Al Gore did not participate in this documentary. Did you reach out to him? Has he ever spoken in greater depth and with, more frankly about all this stuff? Will he ever? We reached out um, through a mutual friend um, and there was no interest. We reached out to other people in his campaign and the other campaign, and there was there was no interest in relitigating uh, this election, which I think is unfortunate. I think there's some some really valuable lessons to learn that we learn from the people on the ground uh, in Miami in this documentary. But I don't think the documentary loses anything for it, you know. But yeah. I would love to know. Uh, yeah, I, I'd love to hear some inconvenient truths from Al Gore about the 2000 Florida recap. Maybe someday. Yeah, and you're right. It's about the campaigns more than it is about the candidates, so it doesn't really suffer for them not being there. But you sort of touched on the final question I wanted to ask you, a quote from 537 votes, close elections can be stolen. You've already repeated it. What lessons do you hope America can learn from this story heading into our current election? Vote. Vote. And vote not just in presidential election years. Mm-hmm. Vote all the time. You know, vote. Vote hard. Vote, vote all the way through the piece of paper. Yes. <laughs> make sure. Make sure you you've perforated the uh, you you pierce the chad. You know. Uh, but no. I, I and that's that's the bipartisan message too. Vote. You have to participate in this democracy. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's it's it is a muscle. If you do not exercise it, it will atrophy and it will it will die. And I couldn't help. I couldn't escape the conviction watching this that they should have. And they were never they were never going to. They should have just let Florida revote if they said, hey, Florida, it turns out this whole thing is on you. The turnout would have been massive. Listen, what they should have done is count all the friggin votes. Which well, is, that helps, too, which is exactly what George W. Bush said on election night. The networks first called Florida for Gore, which basically ended George W.'s uh, hopes of being the president. Republicans need Florida to win. The Democrats don't necessarily need Florida to win. In 2000, both candidates, it turned out, needed Florida uh, to, to, to get the electoral votes they needed to get over the top. But George W. Bush said, when the networks called Florida for Gore, he said, I think we need to count all the votes. Let's wait till all the votes are counted. We have the clip in the documentary. And then they took Florida away from, <laughs> from Al Gore. And then they called Florida for George W. Bush. Actually, Fox News did. George W. Bush's cousin at Fox News called Florida for for Bush. The other networks followed suit. Gore conceded, then takes his concession back because Florida was actually too close to call. And then the networks took the Florida call back from George W. Bush and put it. And the, the difference is that George W. Bush wanted to count all the votes until he got a slight several hundred vote advantage. And then he's like, let's stop counting. I'm satisfied with the results. That's not democracy. That's not counting the votes. That's not how this should work. You know, and, and of course, uh, George W. Bush lost the popular vote by over 500,000 votes. Well, the important thing is that this is all in the past and we have nothing to worry about this time around. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness we are we are so good at learning from history. And there's no more drugs in Miami. Everything is great. (laughs) 
Uh, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on this documentary. Billy Corbin, it's called 537 Votes. It's airing now on HBO and HBO Max, wherever you do your HBOing. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Mike. Welcome back to The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, living like I'm sure many of you 24-7 these days in pajamas, like my name was Hugh Hefner. My last guest, who I assume you heard, was Billy Corbin. He is the director of a bunch of documentaries, most recently 537 Votes. It's streaming on all the HBO platforms if you would like to be infuriated by the political chicanery of 2000 and the Florida recount all over again. I definitely recommend you check that one out. 537 Votes. Uh, Another weekend is upon us here, and once again we are scrounging the bottom of the barrel to find fresh new entertainment to enjoy. And I thought I might take a minute here to give you a hand with that. There, the movie theaters, I don't know about by you. I'm not sure that movie theaters are open and running at full capacity, at least anywhere. Our, my local movie theater is completely frozen in amber. It's weird that they haven't even taken down the, the marquee, the posters that were up there when the world ground to a sudden halt back in March. If this, I think we're going to come out of this situation okay. I don't know how long it's going to take, but if we don't, if this is just the tip of the iceberg of how bad things can get and will get, and if this is the beginning of the rapid demise of civilization as we know it, when archaeologists of the future get to my neck of the woods at least, they are going to think that the pinnacle of human civilization in the year 2020 was Vin Diesel in Bloodshot, and Jim Carrey as the guy fighting Sonic the Hedgehog. Those those were the last movies that made it to the theater, and I'm sure, like like everybody, we're all enjoying movies at home that ought to have been in the theater, but there's definitely lots and lots of stuff that is getting held back for a future hopeful day that they can have a theatrical release, and so that's why there's just a shortage of stuff to look at, and I thought that we might take some time here to look at the things that were intended to go straight to TV, the highlights of video on demand, which I don't know about you, I find it fascinating. I really, really get a kick out of going through my streaming service, whatever you have. I got a Roku and you just look at the new releases and it's stuff that you've heard of and stuff that looks like you know some documentary that's probably incredibly important that I'll never watch. And then you're like, wait a second, is that Orlando Bloom with a gun? When did Orlando Bloom become a vigilante with nothing to lose hell-bent on rescuing his kidnapped wife or whatever, and that's when it hits you, oh, and I I don't say this with a sense of schadenfreude, but this is a thing that can happen to an actor or an actress's career. They're still a name-brand commodity, but come to think of it, it's been a minute since they made a Pirates of the Caribbean or a Lord of the Rings, and come to think of it, that's kind of the only stuff that Orlando Bloom was ever really uh, starring in in the first place. So yeah, I guess the money's got to keep coming in. He's got to stay busy. It's got to be awkward. Uh, Katy Perry is he with? Kate? Let's just assume, for the sake of my irrelevant take on pop culture, that I'm right about that. Katy Perry's like, I got this going on. I got that going on. What's going on? What are you up to today, Orlando? And he's just like, um, I got to go film Tough Horizon or so, you know, he's got to say something. So he, he's, he stays working and you realize Orlando Bloom is, he's one of those guys now. He's one of the VOD guys. And on my other show, on the Jason Ellis show, we talk sometimes about 
uh, you know, Dolph Lundgren and Arnold Schwarzenegger has the pictures have gotten a little bit smaller that he's involved with years ago would have been the biggest fucking deal in the world for him and Stallone to be in a movie together. And instead that was just some prison break thing that maybe it got a theatrical release, but you know what I'm talking about. These are the new B movies, the VOD stuff. And I just find it fascinating when all of a sudden John Cusack, there's one I'll start with when all of a sudden you are scrolling through your Roku new releases and there's John Cusack with, I'm not an expert on plastic surgery, but John Cusack looks like he's wearing a John Cusack mask and he's got like a Rambo headband on and his face is all dirty and he's holding up a revolver. And that's when you find out that these days, John Cusack is starring in Blood Money. Three friends on a wilderness excursion must outrun a white collar criminal hell bent on retrieving his cash. So... That's going to be Cusack, right? You know what's funny about these? Because I'm fascinated by the VOD star cash-in phenomenon. Very often, the guy or the gal, but usually the guy who's on the cover of, you know, I say the cover or the poster, even though they're just little graphics they throw up on your TV or your phone or your computer now, is the big name star. A lot of times you can tell that they got these guys for like three days of shooting or maybe like 12 hours of shooting. So John Cusack just gets out of his car They smudge his face, he throws on the bandana, they hand him a revolver, or maybe he shows up strapped, I don't know, he seems like he could have gotten eccentric these days, and he just wanders down a a jungle path for a while going, come out, come out, wherever you are, and then they, you know, they send him, they pay him in cash, and he takes off, and then a bunch of no-name actors, or even less significant actors, name-wise, than him, go off and film the rest of the movie around the little parts that they that they got from John Cusack. So that's where he's at these days. Pierce Brosnan has arrived at that era of his career, apparently no longer as uh, James Bond. That's been some time now. He is in a movie that's a little bit hard to find. It's called IT. And when you search for it, Pennywise comes up mainly. But no, we are talking about information technology. In this case, an Irish millionaire who has his life turned upside down after firing his IT consultant. So there's Pierce Brosnan running around with a brogue while some creepy dude who looks like Ed Snowden's getting close-ups on a cell phone going, I'm going to hack your life. Cuba Gooding Jr. has got a movie. Okay, I'm taking pot shots at a lot of people here, and it is very easy to take pot shots at the... Academy Award nominee and also star of Snow Dogs. But for better or for worse, Cuba, Cuba, never got, never was clear on that, seems to have poured his heart and soul into a movie entitled Bayou Caviar, which is not a title that does the seriousness of his mission any favors, but in Bayou Caviar, Cuba Gooding Jr. is a former boxing champion who, along with his companions, get caught up with Russian mobsters after he witnesses a crime. And you know what's really fun is when you know the co-stars and then you read the description, the slug line, and you go, oh my God, well, Famke Jansen's in this of, there's no way I'm saying that right, X-Men lady is the chick that Wolverine was always trying to bone is in this. She must be one of his companions turned love interest. Does that make third build star Richard Dreyfus, the head of the Russian mobsters. Oh, please let it be so. That alone 
might get me checking out Bayou Caviar this weekend. Michael Douglas produced a movie. Here's another thing is sometimes these guys do this for the paycheck. Sometimes they do this because it's a movie that they really want to be in that no one will make. So they go, well, how about if we change the story of instead of me running around in downtown Miami, it's me running around in the Mojave Desert and we can film it for like $15,000. I'm Michael Douglas. Can I have some money? And they go, sure. And then Michael Douglas, who again, not wanting to take pot shots, but is not a young man anymore, plays a a cowboy kind of guy. Remember when Dick Cheney used to put on a cowboy hat and you it almost just drew attention to the fact that his body shape and his age no longer lent itself to cowboy activities? That was the vibe I got off of a cowboy-hatted, sunglassed Michael Douglas as an L.A. executive hunting a young tracker across the Mojave, which, as we all know, is the most dangerous game. I think having gotten jaded with all of the earthly pleasures that Earth had to offer him, nothing was left for him other than um, performing dangerous oral sex on his wife and risking oral cancer and uh, hunting a dude out in the desert in a cowboy hat. If that sounds up your alley, Michael Douglas is at his Michael Douglasiest in Beyond the Reach. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, who I, I, well, I wouldn't say I have history with Lou Diamond, but I've always been really interested in Lou Diamond's career. God, what was the name? He made an erotic thriller called, I'm going to say, Indecent Touch. I might be right. If I'm wrong, it does not matter. You get what I'm talking about. And Lou... Lou's enjoyed, I would say, a fortunate career for the skill set. No disrespect that Lou Diamond Phillips seemingly brings to the table. He had, you know, he was the right guy for the job in La Bamba. He was the right guy for the job in Young Guns, Young Guns 2. And then full credit where credit is due, he had this really celebrated run on Broadway where he was in The King and I, which was, I think, Yul Brynner had originated or immortalized that role and it was like nobody can touch that again it's all yule yule is the king and forever shall be and lou diamond was like i'll be the judge of that and they brought it back and it was a stunning success and this guy who was known as the young guns kind of brat pack alternate all of a sudden had this critical acclaim and one night i'm hanging out outside my friends got tickets to radiohead they didn't get me one and or i didn't want one i don't remember and i'm just wandering around Times square drinking malt liquor when i run into lou diamond phillips coming out of the king and i and i stopped him because i was excited to see him and because i was drunk and because i really did feel like he had done an excellent job directing and starring in indecent touch which i'm actually not kidding but i don't think he reflected very fondly on that era of his career and i don't think he cared on that particular evening in times square of new york city to be reminded of that era of his career as he was walking out the back door of a broadway theater fresh off another triumphant performance of the king and i anyway long story short lou diamond phillips is back in a movie that uh there is no word you can't pair with the word kill when it comes to a video on demand action movie of this decade and indeed Lou Diamond Phillips is putting his cowboy hat back on a la Young Guns for a movie called Big Kill which is starring co-starring Jason Patrick remember him of Speed 2 fame and he had a little run there for a little bit and the ever lovable 
sign that you are indeed watching a very disposable movie. Third Build co-star Danny Trejo, who can also be seen in a Danny Glover vehicle. That's right. The two marquee Dannys of this Hollywood generation, Danny Glover and Danny Trejo, finally together on the big screen like we have all always demanded they be for the long-awaited fourth installment in the Death Race uh, saga. It's beyond a trilogy at this point. So, right, there was the Death Race in the 70s that was really bad, and it was so silly and has such a cool name and had such a rad poster. I used to have that up on my uh, my dorm room wall. Better poster than a movie by far. Featuring a young Sylvester Stallone, if memory serves, that they resurrected that for Death Race 2000. LL Cool J also in there, also a sign you might be watching a less than Oscar-worthy motion picture. And apparently it did not stop with Death Race 2000. Danny Glover is, in the trailer, he's just advising young hotshots. But I think we all know that before all is said and done, Danny Glover is going to have to get his hands dirty, get behind the wheel, and do a little death racing of his own. Now, so far, all we've talked about is is dudes, because apparently there is some segment of the American population and a large segment of the international population who will watch, pay for, accept anyone who was ever a leading man walking around with a gun going, where's my daughter? See also John Cusack. See also Pierce Brosnan. What about the ladies? I would like to see them going around doing the <laughs> exact say, where's my husband? Um, but uh, instead, Meg Ryan is still working, it says here, in romantic comedies. At least she was as of as of 10 years ago, she was in a movie called My Mom's New Boyfriend along with Antonio Banderas, which I think like most people, I my mental file for Meg Ryan really bleeds over with my mental file for Melanie Griffith, who, by the way, did get to walk around with a gun in a movie called Cherry 3000. Look it up. It's terrible. I recommend it. Back in the 80s. Barely even got released. One of the biggest turds committed to celluloid in all of the 80s. And that's saying something. It was Melanie Griffith and Antonio Banderas who were a thing, right? And might still be. Well, that did not stop Meg from getting in Antonio's pants, at least up on the big screen. In, well, the TV screen. In 2008's My Mom's New Boyfriend. But for my money, the smart money, if you're looking to enjoy Meg Ryan video on demand this weekend would be the sparks flying between her. I'm told this is a rom-com between her, Meg Ryan and screen heartthrob William H. Macy in 2008's The Deal. Burt Reynolds, did you know the now deceased, rest in peace, Burt Reynolds made 31 movies after Boogie Nights. How many are you even aware that existed? Exactly. That is why you need to spend some time this weekend or throughout what promises to be a fairly long dismal winter catching up on late era Burt. My recommendation, you start with 2006's Cloud Nine. Burt Reynolds updating his classic good old boy role. That's right. The sunglasses are out. You can basically already hear him chewing gum on camera running a volleyball team made up entirely of porn stars. Yes, a beach volleyball 
team. Al Pacino, of course, likes to work, and when there isn't good work to be had, he will just do something else, like Hangman, a homicide detective, brings his partner out of retirement to help catch a serial killer whose crimes are based on the children's game Hangman. I know there's only one man for this job. Bring me 78-year-old Al Pacino. Nobody hunts a serial killer like an 80-year-old man with conspicuously black dyed hair and uh, not a bad goatee in Pacino these days. He also, Al Pacino, this is, shares scenes with, it says here, a similarly slumming Anthony Hopkins in 2015's Misconduct, co-starring the immortal Josh Duhamel, Pacino, Hopkins, Duhamel, only streaming on your TV. Nick Cage, of course, is sort of the patron saint of this whole scene. He makes like six movies a year, and they're all terrible, and I recommend absolutely every single one of them. Running a close second to Nick Cage for the most shameless paycheck-chasing video-on-demand star of our era, of course, Bruce Willis, who the hits just keep coming and coming for Bruce. He was a tech billionaire who hires mercenaries to protect his work. And we know in these movies, when you hire mercenaries, all it does attract more mercenaries. That's pretty much the plot, I'm guessing, of Hard Kill. As I mentioned, Kill, a very saleable title. Apparently that word plays overseas. Hard Kill, not to be confused with First Kill. No longer a billionaire tech CEO, Bruce Willis is now a Wall Street broker forced to evade a police chief while he tries to save his son's life. Give me my son. In 2016, Willis is finally teamed up with the equally immortal Mark Paul Gossler of Saved by the Bell fame in uh, yeah, Precious Cargo. A crime boss tries to make off with loot that belongs to another thief. Uh-oh, this is going to be more hot mercenary on mercenary action. And then we got acts of violence at a bachelorette party in a nightclub. The bride tells two guys offering her blow to go away. In return, they abduct her. That's the blow game for you. Bruce Willis also in the recently announced Out of Death I'd love to help you, lady, but I'm all out of death today. For my money, though, the king of this genre, John Travolta. Some quick highlights. An Ahab-style black beard as Serbian Special Forces veteran stalking Robert De Niro in Killing Season. Or, if you prefer, a Boston Irish con man. Travolta doing accents. Don't sleep on that. In The Forger. And a grizzled, worldly wooden-legged marshal in a western in a valley of violence and of course who can forget Travolta's celebrated turn as was it Hoffa it was Gotti it was Gotti right either way you can't go wrong or check out a movie called Trump versus the Illuminati it's exactly what it sounds like I have to go I hope I have helped more to come on the Tully show next week hopefully we'll get Mark McGrath back in here soon and a bunch of other titillating guests thanks for listening I will see you then